Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to a new episode of the Queen Pod with my mighty cohort. Actually, you know, I'd been doing this Freddie Mercury kind of I'm Freddie and everyone else isn't. And I was just like, I couldn't come up with another one. I think that gag's done. And I had this. Also, it's quite arrogant, I think. And I'm not an arrogant person. So I had this new idea for how to introduce you guys, uh, which was just take a lyric from the side of the album we're chatting about today. Um, and I thought, right, that's it. That's going to deliver the rest of the episode. It's all going to be fine. And I was so confident in that. I didn't actually get around to doing that till this morning. And now I've done it. I realised it. It is. Re- it's. It's. It's a terrible thing. Um, <laughs> Give it so, a go. Give it a go. Go for it. Okay. Yeah. Do it, and we will judge. Okay. Ooh. Okay. Mama's got a problem. It's Sue's Kempner. Oh no, she does. It's me. I'm really sorry. I am it... that problem. I've just found out. Uh, but just for the record, I I, I I think you are good. It's this It's just my mum that, that thinks think I'm not a problem. We might have to, okay. yeah, we might have to redo all of these intros. It's fine, um, I'm, I'm uh, comfortable with it. I think they are bad. When I was you and you were me, you were Simon Lupton. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Hello. For example, that's another one. How are you today, Simon? Very good. Thank you very much. Like everyone mm. else, melting at yeah. the time that we are <laughs> recording this. It is... An oven outside, which makes inside even worse. It is incredible, yeah. We're uh, sort of mid-August and it is boiling. Uh, but these, yeah, the intros are bad. Um, the word goes around about John Robbins. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Thank yeah? you very much. Loving your T-shirt today, John. Thank you. What is it? Queen 82. Queen 82. And oh, a la- the... lady on the front with a large chest. <laughs> uh, when Queen were going through their large-chested ladies on backstage pass period of the uh, early to mid-80s. And this was bought for me by uh, Lloyd Langford in a shop in Australia. Oh, oh lovely. Oh. And mm. she's doing the pointing, not just with her finger, but also apparently with her nipples. They very much yeah, they're the pointing the way. Yeah. It's <laughs> nip-tastic. Uh, and the and kings will be crowned. It's me, Rohan Acharya. There we go. So we've now <laughs> we go. 
done the intro. Uh, as I say, I don't think that's a gag that could possibly work, but we'll, 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 we'll use it as a, as a work in progress. Um, so today we are going to be talking uh, about the first side of the Queen 2 album, which is very exciting. Lots of great tracks on there. Um, uh, but before we do that, uh, we'd like to kick off with our regular section of uh, Queen are the Champions. We are the Champions. We are the Champions. No time for losers. We are the Champions. So this is where we have a chat about whether we all have had a Queen moment at any point in the week. Anyone had a nice little... Queen moment. I, as someone who gets sort of notifications on Twitter from every every Queen item of news or memery that goes around, I got a good one this week, which uh, I will share with you on my screen. Have has everyone seen the crane that looks like Freddie Mercury? Oh yeah. No. Yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, here you go. You're about to she- see the crane that looks like Freddie Mercury. <laughs> Oh yeah! Okay, it's absolutely superb. It's fantastic. It's very good. It's a scene of a harbour with an enormous crane on one side. A a crane. I mean, I'm just going to assume this is from like somewhere in Russia, because it looks like a very, um, very uh, industrial crane. But it looks a bit like Freddie on stage at, uh, at Wembley with his hand thrust in the air. And you can see that if you want to scroll back through the statuses of uh, at faces pics. And it's uh, an account of pictures of things with faces in them. I thought my Queen moment this week was going to be the arrival of my Queen stamps. Uh, because they are due. And so yeah. I was really looking forward to go, look, Suze, I've got the Queen stamps, hooray! Mm-hmm. And then we've got a nice little run of Queen stamp stuff across the episodes. But the Queen stamps that I've ordered are literally lost in the post. <laughs> the iron no um, way. <laughs> so that's my Queen moment denied. But one lovely thing that has happened to me is my son has now started to listen to Queen and I think this podcast and all this kind of stuff has kind of got him well into it. And he just suddenly texted me like at half 11 the other night going, Queen 86, I'm doing it. Mm. Uh, Wembley 86. And then like half an hour later, my God, they're so loud. (laughs) (laughs) This is so gleeful. This is fantastic. So yeah, yeah, that's been, that was a very lovely Queen moment for me. Anyone else? I I wonder what it is that makes kids so susceptible to Queen because even friends of mine who aren't, sort of Queen fans themselves, when their kids have started to get into music, it's always, there's there'll be a, a Queen fan amongst the kids. I wonder if it's just how sort of energetic and catchy the hits are. But you don't get that with like, oh, he's, he's six, he's going through his, you know, the Who stage. Yeah. <laughs> he's singing Gimme Shelter, he just can't get enough of the stones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah maybe. I, I also thought... You know, we, we've talked a lot about how it was kind of uncool to be a Queen fan back in the day. But actually, when you were looking at sort of the manufactured pop of that era, being into Queen meant that you liked, for you know, without any disrespect to any of that mm. kind of pop, but just music, music, <laughs> you know, yeah. kind no of sense. non-manufactured, no sense, exactly. Um, and I wonder if it's more enduring music for that reason as well. But you're mm. right, why? 
Queen over Led Zeppelin? Or it's a very very cool question. And if you're out there and mm. listening, and you happen to be a kid listening to this podcast, go well. I love Queen. Why don't you write in? And tell us all about why and, and solve this mystery for us uh, by emailing queenpod at thequeenpodcast.com. That would be wonderful. section is love of our lives and this is where we get a uh, little note from fans uh, listeners who've written in and told us why they love queen and uh, and maybe I'll offer us a question for debate um and this week i have received a, a, a lovely message from at zara ash harper shall we hear her question yes, yes. Zara's question, right? I'd love to know what was the song that gets the least airplay that is the most dearly loved. Mine is Mustafa. I love that song, although it's kind of era politically incorrect. However, I could see it becoming a celebration of how inclusive Queen was. And I sort of read that last bit and I just sort of ended up thinking I was in the middle of getting on with my day. But should we hear some Mustafa? Because it's yeah. great and it's a brilliant excuse to play it. Brilliant stuff. Thank you, Zara. What a great choice. And I'm going to suggest we put a moratorium potentially on Love of My Life because I think that probably is the sort of most well-known, lesser-known Queen song. Mm. And we use it as the intro even for this section of the show. Um, So outside of Love of My Life, what is your... uh, Queen song that gets the least airplay that is that you most dearly love. Mine, for example, is um, uh, "You and I" Great on show. the Day at the Races album. I think it is, which is a mm. Deaky Deaky special. I absolutely love that track. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm guessing by by doesn't get the airplay. We mean not a greatest hit. Mm. I think so. Yeah. 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 Well, a song that's come back into my life recently that uh, for various reasons, which I won't bore you with now, but. Um, I've been reminded by how amazing it is, is um, Was It All Worth It? from the American album, which um, I have been enjoying immensely and absolutely think that could have been a great single release and probably would have been a hit if it wasn't for the fact there were several songs already released from that same album that did very well. Um, Did they not release it as a single in the end? I I feel that they should have, when they released Scandal, I was... I remember going, oh, why didn't you release, was it all worth it though? Well, they well, released it's... an insane amount of singles from the Miracle album, didn't they? Yeah, they did, yeah. And it was that, that was of the time, wasn't it? That bands were doing that. They were sort of bringing out an album, but releasing about four or five songs from it. So, okay. Um, another one would have been too much because then there wouldn't be much left on the album. <laughs> Mine would probably be Don't Try So Hard from Innuendo. <gasps> oh, that's I a think... beautiful song. I always found that really beautiful, and Freddie's voice is so conversational at times. But still, when he actually hits the chorus, crikey Moses, what a what a set of pipes! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm gonna go for it, it's 
because you played Mr. Far, so it's just got me in the mind of jazz. Uh, I'm going to go for Jealousy. Oh, oh, really? Just because it's a really nice song to cover. Oh, really? So, uh, yeah, it it, like you can you can do any kind of version of it. Um, and I've done it. I've done it before, and like cruise ships and stuff with a piano and people are going oh my god what was that and if you tell them it's queen it blows their minds and oh, which is man. uh my favorite thing to do anyway with queen songs so yeah i think if more people heard jealousy i think they'd really like it There's also it, it, we need to start keeping a list of things brian may's guitar has sounded like because on yeah, jealousy it's a sitar yeah. isn't yeah. it is it a sitar yeah. that he's yeah, impersonating yeah. Well, interestingly, I think we might even hear a little sitar today. Ooh. <sighs> but it's interesting, isn't it? There's, it's such a great question because, mm. aside from the hits, because if you were to ask that question again, we could probably all come up with another song that we would be equally happy mm -hmm. to, to suggest. And I think that's the, the point of what we're doing, isn't it? That, you know, it's, uh, there's so much more to the Queen music than the hits. Well, ha how's this for a controversial statement? If you were to put together two or three greatest hits compilations of songs that are not on the greatest hits you would have uh, a broader musical variety than you do get on the greatest hits yeah oh definitely mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's fighting talk john robbins there's, there's mm -hmm. quite a lot of musical variety on the existing greatest hits i'm not saying there isn't but i'm saying there's more in the the album tracks right yeah yeah no, absolutely but I think you could pick one or two of these off every album. You know, I mean, for jazz, mm. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I love, um, uh, is it Dead on Time? Is that on the jazz mm, album? Mm -hmm. That's mm. incredible. I've used that to introduce people on stage and they just get a rush when you play. Mm. When, when, when a comedian walks out to that, they're like, I feel amazing. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Um, there's loads and loads of tracks like that. Uh, so thank you that was such a brilliant question thank you Zara and yeah do uh, email us queenpod at thequeenpodcast.com um, share uh, your thoughts and feelings about the band and challenge us to uh, a question like that uh, in which we shall all agree with you um, I just of another one we wish I'd said now go on <laughs> same huh? it's late oh, ah yeah Anyway, yeah. we could do yeah. this for hours. Carry on. Not at Sorry. all. Well, no, I'm happy to do it for hours. <laughs> yeah. uh, what was yours, Suze? What was your De other one? Death on two legs. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you want a second bite of the cherry, John? Um, I'll go for Cool Cat. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. That yes. is a song that I, fall in, I fell in love with again last summer. Uh, and the sun day... was out and I was driving and it just came on and I was just like, no, this is gorgeous. I want Simon to break into the vaults and find David Bowie's backing vocals. Oh. Did he do backing vocals on that? Yeah, and then he refused to let them release uh, the version with his backing vocals on. Anyway, that's a chat for another podcast. Mm. Yes. <laughs> so we cannot wait to get to the Hot Space album, can we? It's extraordinary. Um, okay, well, this brings us on to the main feature of the show where we actually get to chat about the music. Hooray! Which Yay. I absolutely love. Okay, well, shall we get into the music? Yes. Yeah. And talk about this wonderful second album from Queen, 
which they call Queen 2. And uh, this was released on the 8th of March, 1974. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about side A, which millennials, please keep up with us, is called the white side. So we have a white side and a black side for Queen 2. White side means side A, side A means first half of the album. And um, Half uh, of the album means uh, the first six tracks on Spotify. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Thank you, John. I mean, if you if you haven't caught up with us oldies by now, uh, well, let's be honest. I don't know if any of you below the age of forty are actually listening to to any of this, but I, I hope you are, um, and and can follow us. Um, so yeah, it was released on EMI and Electra in the US. EMI over here in Britain. Uh, it was recorded at Trident Studios in August nineteen seventy three, produced by Roy Thomas Baker with a couple of extra guys. Uh, well, actually, Robin Jeffrey Cable kind of did some work on, on the second half. Um, and it was engineered by Mike Stone. But actually, I thought, Simon, you could give us a little bit of context for this album as our resident Queen historian. Yes, happy to. Yeah, no, it's been... Um, it was interesting sort of looking back at this one and, and looking at where Queen were at this point. And I think the thing that struck me the most is the speed with which they went back into the studio um, to record uh, Queen 2, given... Uh, the actual first Queen album had only been released, I think it was about three weeks earlier. Um, and uh, there was an interesting, I stumbled across an interesting interview with Brian reflecting on that first Queen album. Um, and he said, that album had the youth and freshness which was never regained because you're only young once. It had a lot of rough edges, a lot of bad playing, a lot of bad production, but obviously we didn't have the time to spend on it that we subsequently did. It sounds a bit bitty to me, and sound-wise it's very patchy, but I would never think of going back and redoing it because I think it has a freshness that we won't have again, which I thought was quite interesting. To sort of, I think he's being perhaps harsher on it than um, than uh, you know he would have done at the time. But um, so the fact that you know that's how they all felt about it, and um, that the first album had only just been released, um, the fact they went back into the studio and this time it wasn't trying to squeeze it in between downtime around other artists, which is how the first album been done. I think whatever you say about their trident experience, and we'll talk more about that as we go on, I think that does represent a massive show of faith on behalf of Trident to sort of say to these guys, OK, now go and do your second album, um, irrespective of how badly the first one was doing, because, you know, commercially it wasn't it wasn't ripping it up. Um, interesting, I saw another interview uh, Brian and Freddie revealed that the intention as they were going in to record their second album was that it was going to reflect good versus evil and that's what they were, how they were approaching it um, and apparently it's when they were recording March of the Black Queen um, was where the idea for black and white theme emerged um, we know that Queen had a lot of these songs already written as they'd been working on them uh, in the many months between Queen One being recorded and then eventually released, um, some of them had already become staples of their live show, which I think is an interesting concept and perhaps something we could talk about more of later, which is, you know, it wasn't like they created songs in the studio as a band and then transferred them to the live act. They had honed them as part of their live act already and then went in the studio to, to sort of recreate them for the album, uh, which is an interesting way of doing it. Um the clock was ticking for them because uh, they had secured one of the hottest touring tickets in the country because they were going to be supporting Mott the Hoople's UK tour, which Trident had actually paid the princely sum of £3,000 for the privilege of it. 
um, because they felt that Mott's audience was perfectly suited um, to Queen's sound, and which again is another sort of massive show of faith in them. So the album had to be done and dusted, um, certainly in terms of all the recording, before that came around. That was quite um, a tour for them, wasn't it, Simon? It that was a massive deal for them. Because as we talked about the last time, didn't we, we sort of noted how Queen had really cut back on gigging uh, in the early part of 1973 Ooh, yeah. for a band that was sort of a jobbing band, as it were. But in in the last three months of 1973, they did 35 shows as part, you know, on this tour. So it was a massive um, ramp up in terms of their live appearances. And wasn't there a sense actually on that tour that somehow Queen were kind of not upstaging Mott's because Mott were fantastic, but w- were really making a mark, you know? Yeah, I mean, the, the the tour went really well and they got some really rave reviews. But um, and interestingly, as the tour went on, as it progressed, they started to share the billing in many places with, with Mott rather than necessarily being the support. But yeah, certainly they were supporting. It was Mott's, Mott's tour, but they they got on really well with Mott, which yeah. um, I think speaks volumes. And... Um, and as a result, it sort of Mott the Hooper were very generous and very happy to allow Queen a share of the limelight. So it worked really well. Mm. I actually found um, again in the excellent Queen as it began book, um, mm-hmm. they did a warm up gig um, at the Imperial College before they started the tour with Mott the Hoople. And um, a journalist called um, Rosie Horride uh, wrote a review on it, um, which went out of the music press and. Um, it was such a good review that the band very much took it to heart and would, I think it gave them a lot, a big boost and they were very fond of Rosie as a result <laughs> for being nice, nice about them. But it's quite a good review. So would you indulge me if you allow me yeah, to read yeah, yeah, to you? Absolutely. For those of you who have not got um, Jackie and Jim's excellent As It Began book. Um, the, the headline is Queen's Loyal Subjects. Oh, Are you all sitting lovely. comfortably? Good. <laughs> I shall begin. Sold out, said the sign on the door. Amazing that an unknown, or almost, group like Queen should sell out a gig at Imperial College, but having seen them now, I understand why. Six months ago, when I last saw the band, they showed promise, but weren't very together. This time, they were very good. Their leader, Freddie Mercury, pranced about the small stage, waving his mic both violently and sensually, as they performed numbers from their first album most notable of which were their single, Keep Yourself Alive, and Son and Daughter. The atmosphere in the hall was electric. The kids were with Queen all the way, showing a remarkable knowledge of the band's repertoire and greeting each number uproariously. The group were musically very good, their stage presence was excellent, and when you consider that the material was all their own, it was a remarkable performance for a new group. The material was far above average, and it was obvious how hard the band worked at entertaining by the tremendous rapport that was established. At the end of the set, after a couple of standard rock and rollers to provide a fitting climax, the audience wouldn't let Queen go. They were forced on stage to do three encores until they finally had to stop, not from lack of demand, but sheer exhaustion. The funniest moment was undoubtedly the first encore. Freddie's big spender was done a la Shirley Bassey and thus was outrageously camp. (laughs) On the whole, it was a very good night and a highly creditable performance. If Queen are this good on the tour with Mott the Hoople, which they start next week, Mott had better watch out. Queen could turn out to be a bit more than just a support band. Wow. You can can see why they like that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That is a Um, confidence boost, isn't it? Also at this point, um, another key development was due to the flood of letters from fans, 
EMI turned to Trident to say, is there any chance that Trident could now handle the band's mail because it was just so, uh, so huge. So instead, Trident paid to set up the Queen Fan Club, which the band were closely involved in setting up and really took an interest in. Um, and amazingly, that is still going to this very day and uh, is a very strong presence and has a huge community of, of Queen fans, many of whom have been there from the very start. Um, and the other interesting thing I will just say um, is that it, the band was still working uh, in other jobs uh, to supplement their music ambitions at this stage. Um, oh, Brian shit. had taken a part-time teaching job, teaching English in South East London, um, and was also still working on his thesis for his PhD. Uh, Freddie was running, still running a stall in Kensington Market, and John was still very much studying university, unsure whether this whole Queen thing was actually going to pan out or not. So um, that's kind of where the band were when they went in to do what is often known as the very tricky second album. Wow. That's oh, well amazing. Done, Simon. That's There'll be people in their 60s, won't there, who were like, oh, yeah, Brian May taught me English. Yeah. <gasps> there yes. must be. That's like one degree of rye. Oh, if anyone yeah, yeah. have, can you let us know, did Brian teach you English? Yeah. <laughs> and did it look like his heart was in it? <laughs> I, th I think I'm right in saying that the Queen Fan Club is the longest running fan club for a band, isn't it, Simon? Yes, it is. Yeah, Aww. it went into the Guinness Book of Records a while ago with that. That's that amazing. Claim and, um, and still is there. Yeah, they still do a convention every year. Um, I think they were due to have their 35th consecutive um, convention this year, but sadly, COVID put pay to that. Um, mm. But uh, it means they'll be back bigger and stronger next year, I'm sure. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's an extraordinary thing, and um, I'm pretty sure you've got most of the fan club magazines, haven't you, John? <laughs> yeah, there's there's um, it, it's a real reminder of how the past was a more innocent meadow, for want of a <laughs> phrase that exists. But um, you get like eight year old kids in the listings at the back, say giving out their full address and telephone number, oh saying want to meet up uh, to. <laughs> with other Queen fans and there's one I think of a boy asking for someone to take him to the convention because he's got a ticket but his parents can't take him so just saying oh. like pick me up from outside my house <laughs> um, are you so missing you say any Queedophiles any... are you missing any what? I said Queedophiles <laughs> sorry <laughs> don't, put, don't put that in that <laughs> I love it that's fantastic sorry. Very no, I like that that I'm. Uh, I thought was brilliant. Um, uh, are you missing any uh, issues of the? Fantasy? Yeah, well, I've got all of the issues from after I joined. So I joined in um, winter two thousand and one, uh, winter nineteen ninety one, and I remember se I remember sending the check to five for five pounds with a little uh, letter, saying something like it would it would be a great honour if you'd accept me into the Queen oh. Fan Club. Um, but it's sort of an interesting, it's a very interesting time to have a record of all Queen's activities from like 91 to 2000. Mm. Because it was that mad period where you had, the big things were made in heaven and the tribute concert initially. But then there wasn't, there was solo projects, but there was sort of no big unifying queen project like um, We Will Rock You the Musical and Bohemian Rhapsody or the Queen and Adam Lambert tour. So you get like mad stuff, sort of photos from the conventions and 
there's there's one where there's a like a two page long explanation of why the price has to go up from I think five pounds a quarter to seven pounds a quarter <laughs> membership subs and Jackie Gunn lists all of the things you that you can get for seven pounds or something. <laughs> and it's like a quarter of a tank of petrol, two packets <laughs> of fags. <laughs> but um it's an incredible document of of not not you know, not barren years, but certainly bef- when there wasn't a great deal happening at certain times. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, was was it Jackie at this point? Then was it from the was she there from the very beginning? No, she didn't set it up, but she she sort of joined very very early on and has yeah, been right. has been the driving force, you know, behind it for for yeah. years. And um, you know, and there's a there's a great sort of group of people that you know circle around Jackie who support her and you know really get involved in everything it's a it's a it's a brilliant thing and um, it really is whenever i've been to the convention you know going f- initially back in 1989 as a fan and then have been fortunate enough to be invited back because of the work i've done with queen since um i think it's just something about being away for a weekend with a thousand other people who all love the same thing um yeah it's such a great feeling and um you, you meet people from all walks of life uh, many of whom have very serious and uh, high-profile jobs, and then really? for just one weekend lose themselves uh, in Queen and put fake moustaches on and strut around in vest tops. You know, and I think why not? I think it's it's brilliant. Um, what kind of stuff do they get up to at the conventions? Because I've not I've not been to one. I really want to go. I think the next one they have. There's all sorts. I mean, and it's evolved over the the years. They always have guests, and they have great guests as well. You know, people mm. who have been part of the Queen story um, over the years. Um, you know, people like Jamie Moses, who used to sort of help Brian on stage when they were on tour with um, Paul Rogers, and was part of the Brian May band when you know with Brian. He he will come along and he'll he'll demonstrate you know some of Brian's riffs and talk about them and give little master classes as well as sort of playing a few songs, which is always great. Mm. Um, Tim Staffel's done it, you know, the former the, you know first singer with Smile. Um, loads of people and um, Greg Brooks goes every year and plays amazing rarities and alternative versions from the archive um there's a fancy dress competition they always have a a, a tribute band will come along and and play so there's a massive party on oh, the, the wow. saturday night it's um it's incredible and oh. yeah it's just and everyone's in a great mood yeah everyone's in a great mood and it's uh yeah it's uh it, and it's in, in a holiday camp in some far-flung part of england in october so the weather's oh. always rubbish um <laughs> But it's it, they're, they're really good fun, way. and it's um, amazing that it goes it goes that far back, which is yeah, incredible. really, really incredible. Um, all right, well, let's get back to the album. The uh, side white songs were sort of uh, have more of an emotional theme potentially. Well, the side black is sort of more fantasy songs, and the side white. I think you did say this was were written by Brian. All the songs were written by Brian Roger, and all of side side B, the black side, was written by Fred. Apparently, Queen asked. Bowie to produce the album but he said no so he's no. now starting to gather quite a track record of saying no to Queen <laughs> wouldn't, he, wouldn't he have been producing Transformer at that time I think he was around in the studios at that that that, mm. that period yeah yeah and it could well have been Transformer oh no that was released in 72 sorry sorry god <laughs> was he working on was he been working with Elton on something I can't remember 
so yeah, like Simon said, the whole album was recorded uh, in August '73, just a, a month after Queen One was released. Um, and this time they wanted proper studio time in daytime hours, so it wasn't like the first album. And it had a working title. Are you guys aware of this? What its working title was? Uh, I, yeah, didn't Roger come up with one? Yeah, yeah. Can you remember it? Was it something to do with f- faxes? Fax, packs, oh. and something. Uh, what I've got is over the top. Oh. Unless I'm just getting confused with Sly, Sly Stallone movies, which I could be doing. That might be actually the Queen one was going to be titled Deary Me. <laughs> really? <laughs> and I think another of the potential titles for Queen one was something like Fax Picks. And... Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Deary Me was Deary a me. brilliant <laughs> idea for an album title. That's so amazing. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely awesome. So the band made full use of Trident's 16-track recording facility, uh, and Roy Thomas Baker described it as the the full kitchen sink album, which I love. They just threw everything mm. into this into this album. Um, it was delayed. Uh, its release was delayed a little bit. Uh, there was a strike. Uh, the mine the mine minor strike um, caused an energy shortage, uh, which uh, imposed a three-day working week at the time. And that uh, delayed the the actual pressing of the album. So uh, oh. Scargill delayed Queen 2 coming out. Um, and then the group spotted a spelling error. Uh, and I love this because <laughs> this just finishes up a little train for me of, uh, uh, of the fact that on the finished sleeve, John was credited as Deacon John. And the band at that point insisted on that being changed back to John Deacon. So oh. they delayed the pressing again to to get John Deacon back from Deacon John. So that's a, a lovely oh. little thing. Um, and I think he, he did... Uh, he So you mentioned that John was sort of still doing his MSC. Um, yeah. But he did quit at the point of the album's release. And he, 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 he did say to an interviewer later in 73... Um, Oh, there's quite a lot of work going for studio electronics engineers, but I'm sticking with Queen for as long as we last, Yeah, uh, which is quite beautiful. Um, and uh, we are about to get into the into the songs themselves. Something that um, occurred to me when I was listening. Through, so I'm listening through to these albums now on my um, uh, digital platform. Uh, I'll say iTunes, but Spotify and other things are available, though I don't know what those other things are. YouTube, I suppose. But um, iTunes is what I was listening to. And what was interesting with this album, and I've always loved about this album, is so many of the songs, particularly on both sides, but definitely on this side, they they um, they blend one into the other. And when you're listening to it digitally, it's not bad, but there is a, just a hint of a skip. Uh, as you go through it, and, and Suze, you you've been talking about uh, the last uh, certainly over the Queen One album uh, that each side starts dramatically, that they think theatrically, the running orders all carefully worked out, um, and it occurred to me suddenly that actually, if I had uh, the spare cash, which I don't really, but I I probably would want to invest in a record player and a Queen. LP collection. Oh, to hear them as they were. Yeah. Mm. Like, you know, I wouldn't need it on tape, but I like the idea of turning them over and listening to them as they were intended. Mm -hmm. At least up until, I guess, the miracle in uh, Innuendo, even a kind of magic, they'd started to think about CD not having two sides. So they're sort of designing it for both. But, you know, to fully experience it and listen to it as intended, 
you can't really do that digitally and actually that is a it's a lovely case to have imagine having a, your own analog collection of queen that you could just sit down and listen to it's a band that's worth doing it for i think um and i i don't know you know if, if, if you know we're all I think everyone's having a tricky old time of it at the moment. But if you happen to be one of the people that's um, uh, merrily keeping the economy going and have some spare cash, I think you could do worse than putting some of that cash back into circulation by picking up a, a record player and, and helping someone out by seeing if they want to sell you their Queen LP collection. I don't know. What do you think? What do you think, guys? There is a there is a setting on iTunes to allow the songs to uh, seek into each other. It's called Gapless Playback. And I discovered that after encountering the exact same problem uh. on uh, A Night at the Opera. Oh. oh, well, then don't bother putting money back in the economy. <laughs> There's just a setting on iTunes. So just forget all that beautiful stuff that I just said. <laughs> John's, John's solved it. Flick a switch. No, I, I agree. I think there is something marvellous about listening to them on the original, on the vinyl. Um, and you can definitely get, you know, turntables now that connect to bluetooth speakers so you, you know you don't have to then back in the day you have to get an amp and then speakers and wire them all in and everything so um I, yeah there's something magical about listening to them how they were originally intended mm. there's a nice I, I just, and a crackle to it well yeah and it's the actual physical act of flipping the disc over at each end yeah i think is it's a wonderful thing um anyway uh, what a lovely album we're getting to chat about today. So on the side white album, we kick off with uh, a track called Procession, which is written by Brian May. Most of these tracks are written by Brian uh, on this side, uh, all but one, in fact. Uh, it's uh, just over a minute long, minute 13 seconds, and it is purely Brian and Roger. Um, they describe it as a funeral march, uh, and Brian multi-tracked overlaying parts on the Red Special through Deacon's custom amplifier, the Deakey amp, which John has uh, talked about uh, a lot, and Roger literally only uses a bass drum pedal for this for this track. Shall we listen to a little bit of it? here father to son starting to creep in yeah. which is so exciting okay what do we think about kicking an album off with this amazing procession i think it's <laughs> fascinating because they say on this album again yeah no one played synthesizers again or something along those lines i i think you would swear blind that that was all synthesizers wouldn't it you would mm. not believe that a synthesizer was not involved in the making of that mm-hmm. track or at least an organ or a harpsichord or something yeah. it's extraordinary sound yeah there's no other guitarist on earth that could have written that. Yeah. It's just it's so completely May 
and <laughs> so unique to him. I, I remember this album probably more than any other Queen album. I just wore out when I was about 12. But looking, listening back to it now, what that, I know they've said it's not necessarily a concept album, but I think that's, you can't really say that when you've got a white side and a black side and <laughs> yeah. white queen and black queen. There is certainly <laughs> some kind of uh, theme going through, but that that song as an opener does say, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a concept album on our hands. <laughs> um, and I love the drum sound. It's like it's in, it's like it's coming from a dungeon beneath mm. the guitar. It feels like a heartbeat. It's so great. And as a kid, especially with as a kid without much knowledge of other music, I was thinking, what is this? It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And also, a queen do this so much. Like, if you're going to write a, a, a procession piece of music, that is what it's meant to sound like. That is exactly the sequence of notes that a procession piece should sound like. So yeah. that's the one that I think of more than any kind of pre-existing hundred, hundreds of years worth of, of of that type of music. It's this that I find that I'd, I'd think of. Yeah, this is my favourite Queen album. Yeah. So I think the this to, is my favourite opening of any Queen album. It's really bold, isn't it? Because they've just had an album that wasn't a massive hit. And they took a lot of risks with it. So they'd be forgiven with this one for going, okay, well, let's just try and do loads of songs that people might like. And mm. no, they, they're going to open with this Baroque feel, uh, classical yeah. inspired literal procession. Yeah, yeah. Which, like as you say, it sounds like it's all synths and it wasn't. And uh, I took this into a-level music because we were all asked to bring a baroque piece into a-level music and i was the only um student using voice as an instrument so i was way behind everyone else because everyone else could play instruments really well and i brought this in thinking this is going to be so punk that i'm putting this on and my music teacher was quite disgusted with me martin hall when he went this is not baroque and i went it is and i explained all the different ways it followed baroque rules and he never forgave me <laughs> <laughs> what, because you were right and he was wrong well there was it's not baroque because it came out in the 1970s but it does follow loads of baroque yeah. rules and i was able to explain it and it's uh like you shouldn't cling on to things that happened to you when you were 17 but what else have I got? Like I'm gonna cling on. I'm gonna cling on to Martin Hall um, being wrong about this. Yeah. Although there are lots of things about this that don't follow Baroque rules, but I didn't mention those. No, no but you made your case. <laughs> Martin Small is what I say. Yeah, take that, um, Martin. Yeah, take that. Martin he probably Martin thinks Small. about me all the time. <laughs> um, well, I think you're a superhero for doing that, Suze. I love that. That's a great story. Shall we move on to uh, what this is introducing, which is it's, it's, the next track is Father to Son. It's over six, six minutes, 12 long, again, written by Brian, of course. Uh, lots and lots of multi-tracking. Um, Brian also playing piano on this track. Uh, and it was on their live set, incredibly, right up until 1975. Let's listen to uh, a little bit of uh, Father to Son. I think if we just start with just the little opening, really, just to, to establish sort of the 
the the verse chorus kind of structure. huge <laughs> opening to a track it's uh, it's an astonishing melody and uh, an astonishing crashing of sound and a huge announcement of of what they're capable of particularly coming out of uh, that sort of procession kind of you know almost a quiet opening into this enormous yeah. eruption of sound it's got a very beach boysy vibe to the um, to the Ooh. to the vocals yeah, well, that's interesting yeah. because the next bit I was going to... I, I thought the next bit we should actually listen to is the Do-Do-Do's, which does does sound very, very mm. Beach Boysy. Should we have a listen to that? and then just a badass riff from Brian May and those lyrics take this letter that I give you take it sunny hold it high uh, you won't understand a word that's in it but you'll write it all again before you die I mean I that mm. that lyric has stayed with me almost like Cats of the Cradle you know that that track mm. but it, has, uh, it stayed with me from when I first heard this at 13 and then became a father myself and uh, yeah, it, it changes the evolution of the and, the and the resonance of those lyrics changes as I, as I make my way through life. It's a, an incredible piece of music. There, it's very mature songwriting, isn't it, for yes. someone in their twenties? Yeah, very mature lyric writing. It's such a catchy chorus. You sort of wish they'd um, still been playing this well into the eighties, because it'd be awesome to hear old stadium. On the Wembley 86 yeah, DVD singing, Kings will be crowned. It'd be amazing. Simon, yeah. having already managed to get one track into into their set list now, Simon, you have to get this yeah, into Yeah, get into Father to Son. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is your job. Send him a text. I don't think Brian would take much persuading, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you're right, Suze. There, it is a mature... Uh, and he is, he is a thinker. Like, he... He does. He has this sort of um, uh, 
uh, sort of introspective kind of attitude, a very internal sort of set of thinking that does come mm. out in his music and his lyrics. And like, uh, yeah, it's it's particularly effective here, I think. Mm. Um, shall we listen to some more? Yeah. I mean, they're all going for it on this track. Yeah, Roger's drums it's, sound it's, huge. <laughs> it's quite an odd sounding song. I don't know if Suze can explain why, but it sounds like the whole song is an outro. It's got oh, that. I know ca- what you mean. Yeah, it's got that cadence, like it's always on the. It's always ending. It's like they're fa- fading out different takes and bringing in another, and then you go, "Oh, there's another one." <laughs> <laughs> then they bring but also up it's like take. the melody is that of the end of a song. Mm, mm-hmm. I, it could, I don't it know could why. end so many times, couldn't it? This mm. yeah. It's mm. like the last Lord of the Rings film. Every, <laughs> every time you think, oh, that's the end of this song, there's another bit. But it never outstays its welcome. No. You never go, oh, it's still going. <laughs> no, no, never. Uh, because they keep it interesting. I'm going to play yeah. this last bit of this uh, track here because... Uh, it's that bit where they kind of go into this final sort of chant, essentially, that, um, again, is yet another sort of musical sequence. It's just a really long fade out. So all these opportunities they've had to sort of end the song at these <laughs> abrupt moments, they're like, no, no. But what, it all moves into a. Does it shift into a major key there, Suze? Is that what's going yeah, on? Yeah, it is a major key. Uh, Queen work in the same way as classical music. It's all movements. This song is very much all movements based around the same motifs, and they do this again and again. And in procession they foreshadowed the melody of father to son and in in this you'll hear because we're going to do uh, white queen next you, they foreshadow the harmonies a little bit in father to son before white queen right did we hear that bit i don't know <laughs> <laughs> is that coming towards the end or i'm curious i think it's in Maybe, oh it is it is it's right at the very end you start getting this sort of closer to this Once I don't again, think you would not say about. that was a guitar, would you, <laughs> if pressed? Mm-mm. That right. wouldn't be your first instinct. Right. I, I read somewhere, I think it was Greg Brooks, who mentioned that when they 
pulled the multi-tracks out for father to son of the 16 tracks that were there i think it was about at least eight of them were all guitar um tracks right. uh, and you know that wouldn't just be one guitar on each one that would have been you know built up and then bounced back and you know so that each so god knows how many guitars you're actually listening to i mean i don't <clears throat> know much about recording but that does sound like a lot to me <laughs> um yeah so i don't know if yeah. normally there wouldn't be that many but that that mm-hmm. kind of would make sense wouldn't it yeah and it's not like they're doing this digitally it's <laughs> wearing no, no. out tape no amazing absolutely incredible what a beautiful song father to son eh mm-hmm. mm. stunning stunning track uh, a real anthem and um i think as strong as anything that brian's ever written actually personally i think it's a, a fantastic song and that brings us to our section of the show that we like to call simon says Guaranteed to blow your mind. <laughs> Guaranteed to blow your mind. There you go. Um, yes, well, uh, loyal listeners will um, remember that um, when we were discussing the Queen one, well, the Queen album, the first Queen album, that um, John made the very uh, acute observation that, that Roger Taylor had gone on record as saying he wasn't happy with the drum sound on this album um, and asked the question as to why that might be. Um, Now, I've not been able to get uh, any specific response to that from Mr. Taylor himself. However, um, thanks again once to to sort of Greg Brooks, who pointed me in the direction of an interview that Brian gave, where he talked specifically about the recording of Queen One and... How they struggled with the drum sound. So, in answer to John's question, what is it about the drum sound on Queen that the band weren't happy with? Maybe this will answer that question. The first, it was a mess, to be honest with you. You know, it's like you've waited all your life to do this, and then you get shoved in between people who were recording different bits of stuff, and and just because they break for a cup of tea, you get to get five minutes in the studio. It was that kind of a deal, really. I mean, you probably think it was very glamorous. But it was actually very hard because we were sort of stuck on the end of a, a production company who were already busy with stuff. The Trident, was it? The yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, it was, a, it was a difficult situation. I mean, not entirely bad, I have to say, you know, because we got to work with some of the greatest um, technicians of that time. You know, they had a great stable of producers and engineers. But it was tough, you know. We, we didn't get priority, and um, it was made in bits and pieces, that, that first album, you know. And you, you felt like screaming most of the time because you just couldn't get your fingers on it. You know? We were bursting with, with the ideas and just dying to get them on tape. But, um, you know, when you start off, people tell you that they, things have to be done a certain way, and it was, it was strange. You know, like the drum sound on that first album is nothing like what we envisaged, really. Yeah. And it took us till the next album to start getting our own way. You know, actually, yeah. we wanted it to be big and ambient, not to sound like a piece of tissue paper, you know. Yeah, absolutely. But the Trident drum sound at that time was famous throughout the land. And it was yeah. like, how dare you guys not want this sound, you know? Yeah. Trident drum sound in those days was put the, the drums in a tiny little box and cover them with sticky tape and bits of foam until they go, you know, yeah. and they go, yeah, and we went, that's not the way we like it. And they said, oh, it's fine, we can put some echo on it, boys. And it'll sound great. Of course, it doesn't. It sounds like yeah. what it was. It's got the so, yeah. Sound, so yeah. you know, you just gradually work. That's just one example. You know, yeah. you gradually work over the years to get more of your autonomy and your your artistic uh, freedom. So there you go. So it's very much a case of um, 
being told, no, no, this is how it's done, and them not having the confidence to go, that might be how it's done normally, but not how we want it, and also being promised that it would all be fine in the mix, it could be fixed, and then, of course, it can't. Um, so I think it was a, they learnt the hard way that, um, you know, they had to, if they had a very clear vision of how they wanted it to sound, it was up to them to make it sound that way. And um, interestingly, already uh, on this album, they're, they're definitely starting to do that. Yeah, that drum sound right through this album is, is huge now. Uh, and also, uh, it kind of speaks to why, what we were saying earlier, it speaks to why they were going, nope, we're going in at normal recording times now, thank you very mm. much. And we're going to do proper recording sessions, thank you. Yes. It's, it's uh, amazing how much the vision they had and how they were able to pursue it and how little they, uh, I mean, a huge amount of compromise on the first album in almost every part of it, but how little they had to compromise quite early in their career compared to some bands, I guess, mm. how they mm. were able to sort of really dig in their heels. I think Queen are quite good at digging in their heels and never <laughs> yeah. sort of doing what they don't want to do. And I wonder if the experience of the first album really ingrained that in them, that if we don't do things exactly the way we want to, then we won't be as happy with the product. Yeah, I think that's what makes their music sort of timeless, really. <laughs> to be honest, you know, that... That insistence and that that uh, uh, idiosyncrasy—I don't know what the word is—but that you know that particular approach to their music, you know, um, means that we can sit here in twenty twenty, whatever it is, fifty years later almost, and um, a whole new generation of people are just uh, lapping this music up. It, it doesn't date in the same way because it sounds so good right at the right from the very beginning. Um, I wonder how many bands fell by the wayside because they. They did what they were told, and they compromised their own artistic vision because they, they sort of fell for that. No, this is how you do it. This is, you know, you're you're amongst the the grown ups now, and this is how it's done. And they never, they never got how they wanted it to sound like, and ultimately, failed and never got the chance. Mm. It happens to the creative process. You know, you think you know a way to do it, but ultimately, it's a collaborative process, and you kind of have mm. to. You give way quite often, but these guys didn't, and I think they did it in the in the best way possible. Mm. Um, I do have to question why that interviewer decided to play a guitar solo from someone that isn't Brian May. That was really Brian weird. Mitchell. It sounded like yeah, uh, something of a video game. <laughs> like Joe Satriani or Igwe Malmsteen <laughs> going absolutely bananas, Steve Vai or whatever. But uh, there we go. I guess it was from a time. Yes. <laughs> uh, where would you find that interview then in its entirety? Is that something you've dug out of the vaults or...? No, I haven't got it all in its entirety, but um, but yeah, but it was a clip that Craig kindly found for me um, yeah. to answer that race. But he said I distinctly remember Brian talking about this. And, oh, uh, well done, Greg, and thank yes. you, Simon. That is a good Simon says you have blown our minds. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> all right, should we get back to the works then? White Queen, brackets as it began, uh, four and a half minute track, again written by Brian of course. It was a song apparently that Brian had written in 1968 which had been inspired by uh, Robert Graves, this is, I love this, it was inspired by Robert Graves' treatise on poetry and a girl from his biology class at Hampton, at Hampton School. 
which I think is absolutely fantastic. Um, we sort of listened to that lovely elision from father to son into this. Um, I thought there's a couple of bits that I'd like to play here. The first is just sort of that main white queen thing that then explodes. <laughs> just heard the, the 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 very first bit where it's see where it's seeging in from uh, sorry segway i only learned that seeg <laughs> isn't a word recently um where it segways in because i just think it's the saddest sound in all of queen mm. just right for the very beginning yeah yeah So John, how do you feel about this? You seem to have quite an emotional resonance with this song. I just something about that the um, guitar as this song uh, starts just reminds me of being twelve years old and thoroughly depressed, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I didn't know that was about a girl in Brian's biology class because I would definitely have been listening to this and thinking about a girl from my French class when I was uh, when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely. It's got that lovely medieval kind of vibe to it again, kind of bringing in this idea that it is really quite a concepty album. You know, there is all this sort of fantasy and there's a reflection of what's going on with March of the Black Queen on mm. on the other side, which is a much more bombastic song in so many ways. Also, it never yeah. it never feels like you're listening to a band who are in a studio. They mm. it, it It's very hard when... It's hard not to imagine quite grandiose, like, gorman ghasty sort of fantasy landscapes or yeah, or whatever, but it's you're definitely not imagining them that stood in a sort of, in a circle playing their instruments in a in a studio with with a big rug to deaden the sound and that kind of thing, yeah. and microphones. Yeah. It, just, it just, just transports you somewhere completely different. It does. There's yeah. some sort of flowing white robe in the woods, isn't there? Yeah, mm. <laughs> or a glen. It's yeah. You can't. I know what you mean. You can't imagine them uh, going. And now I'll go in and do my take. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it says, sounds like one one long thing where all four of them were there together, and that can't be the case. Yeah, it's. I always think it sounds like quite George Harrison. Yeah, like yeah. quite a George Harrison late sixties feel, and he was the best Beatles. So. <laughs> oh. Okay. <laughs> don't at me <laughs> I think we've just established a new podcast um, <laughs> yeah no I was, I was picking up what you, what you both you Rowan and um, John have mentioned about the Queen sort of very rarely explained what their songs were about you know because they they liked the fact that you you interpret it yourself or you, ha- mm. you have an emotional connection which might not necessarily be 
the right one they were looking for, but it doesn't mean to say it's any less valid, so they don't want to ruin that. But we do have the luxury, as you say, of Brian has been you know, explained this, and I love the fact there's the sort of the official answer, which is that he'd been reading Robert Graves, which explored the role of the idolised virgin mother and queen figure in art through history. And uh, given the name of their group, which they decided just around that time, it fitted in with this perfectly. So that's the sort of the official answer. And then the unofficial answer is that um, he said there was this girl in his class who to him was the ultimate goddess. Um, and in retrospect, it's incredible because I held her in such awe in three years, I never had the courage to speak to her or and, or, and to tell her how he felt about her. And um, so instead of just, you know, letting that eat him inside, he wrote a song about it that appears on the album. And um, I think that's such a, <laughs> that's such a, a, an incredible sort of way into their minds um, of, of the layers that you find in songs. But I mean, the, the question that I have off, off of that is, if if they're not in the habit of explaining what the the motivation is behind the song or where it's it's coming from, Suze, as a singer, does it help if you know what the song's about to sing it to give it more uh, conviction? Would Freddie have wanted to know where Brian was coming from, or would he just have accepted it and just sung it? I don't know. Very possibly. Um, I like to know before I do it uh, because it stops you like singing a song completely wrong <laughs> which can be done oh do you know the song nights and white satin by the moody blues yeah. i got given it on i got the someone gave me recorded onto a cassette the soundtrack for casino and it's on there and they'd written the whole um uh track listing out for me it's very kind of them and until i was 30 i thought nights in white satin had a k at the beginning and so, and if you listen, and I thought it was a song about the KKK, and if you listen back to that song, um, thinking this is a love song about a guy in the KKK who's fallen for a black woman and he doesn't know what he believes anymore, it's a way better song. Anyway, so I, but I used to sing, I used to sing Nights in White Satin and tell people that, that you know, that's what this song's about. I'm so sure of it. Anyway, like this song, yeah, I'm sure Freddie would want to know. The um, motivation. Yeah, I think yeah. he'd say, "Sod off, Brian! It's my song now." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he'd say, "Bugger that girl in biology, Brian!" He'd <laughs> <laughs> uh, sing about a medieval princess. It's interesting <laughs> that a lot of Brian's songs you you kind of in your head when you think of a Brian May written Queen song, you think of the very rocky guitar-based ones. But mm. if you actually look at a list of the songs he wrote. An awful lot of them are, are quite um, melancholic songs about loss. Yeah. Um, so mm. I've got the list up here. And if you just go through it, yes, there's kind of, um, you know, Now I'm Here and Sweet Lady and that sort of thing. But there's also um, Dreamer's Ball and um, uh, Long, Away. Long Away and mm. um, It's Late. Well, I mean, that is a more rocky one, but um, White Queen. And then also, if you think about Too Much Love Will Kill You. Yeah. And um, All Dead, All Dead. That's mm. Cat. Oh, yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, he, he's sort of a... He, he can be a, a, a proper balladeer. Uh, there's mm. no doubt about that. But uh, I was just thinking about John's uh, list of Brian's uh, guitar turning into instruments. And I mentioned we might hear some um, 
sitar. Mm. Uh, mm. And I think this ties into what you're saying about George Harrison. I think there's a bit of Beatles going on here. Uh, and I think there's a little bit of uh, uh, even maybe Rolling Stones painted blacky type stuff here. Mm. Um, uh, and again, this is a, a lovely bit of White Queen. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, this is when Brian's guitars do let rip. <laughs> orchestral is that mm. Full 100% sounds like a sitar yeah there's sitar there's organ there's uh, you know there's that sort of almost horn section coming in at the mm. end over those mm-hmm. guitars crashing guitars and when in doubt however beautiful and pretty Brian can get on his guitar and his guitar playing is so pretty all the way through that section then he comes in with his red special on <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. According to Wikipedia, the song features May playing on his hair fred acoustic guitar. The guitar had been given a replacement hardwood bridge, chiselled flat with a small piece of fret wire placed between it and the strings, which lay gently above. This made the strings produce a buzzing effect of a sitar. Oh, so oh. it's not any effect that's been put on in the studio. No. In post-production, that's amazing. I would not have thought that was on an acoustic guitar either. I, I assume it's that incredible. would have been the Red Special doing that. God, he's so inventive. And this is the first instance that I can see of Freddie putting what's called a cry quality onto his voice. So, like, the muscles we'd use to cry, the muscles and placement that when your voice starts breaking, when you're going to cry, he's doing that while he's singing. And that's purely instinctive. Like, singers have to be taught that, and he's just doing it by instinct. And you can really hear what's called cry quality wow. in how he's singing wow it. I never even I wasn't even aware of that stuff could you give us an it's, example like yeah like so um uh even even from the first uh when he comes in he's going so sad and it's not his sound that he was using in father to son was like this quite it's a rock sound but it's also quite a laid back loose sound and it will be to do with how his head is tilted um so if you imagine a hook at the highest point of your head at the back of your uh the back of the top of your head and it's pulling you up in that way that's how you would place your voice to do cry quality i'm speaking in it and then you take it back the tilt would be back for the sound he was using in father to son and every time you see freddie with one foot in front of the other on stage leant back and it looks really cool that's just him instinctively knowing how to how to place his body correctly to make that sound that was so unique to him and you'll see it in rock singers all across the 70s and 80s a lot of them did it robert plant did it um and it's not it's not uh posing it's genuinely uh it's then it was then studied by a 
singing coach called Joa Still, who I had I trained under her method, and she said, "Well, I noticed all these." rock singers making this sound completely safely and I noticed what they all had in common and I did it and I knew why they did it and wow. Freddie was just doing that on pure instinct yeah he oh, could so <laughs> great fact. Great but yeah fact. he could create this completely different sound for White Queen yet it doesn't sound like another singer and that's why he's my favourite singer of all time <laughs> wow you said earlier on that I blew your mind but that yeah. that is that genuinely yeah. mind blowing <laughs> stuff yeah. that's that's good news because I will nerd out on that <laughs> till I die. Freddie, we stand. What's so great about that is we all we all think that Freddie was a genius, but now now you're mm. sa- you're saying no, he actually was. <laughs> That's properly he was. It's fact. Yeah. It's not just opinion. It's fact. Yeah. And then earlier we heard Mustafa, and he's hitting um, in a full belt with no vibrato. That Imrahi. It's such a clean sound. That can only be taught, yet he just does it. And if it can't be taught, it'll be that someone's sound. Yet he had 30 different colours he could put on his voice. I love that, that, that you know, he's so known for, for his posturing and posing and it's mm, all mm-hmm. wonderful. But the fact that that is how he was operating his instrument. Is yeah, he's worked phenomenal. it into the act. Yeah, yeah. That's just epic. Absolutely epic information. Thank you. Um <laughs> Okay, shall we move on to uh, the last Brian May uh, written track on uh, the white side of Queen 2? Someday, one day. Uh, It's uh, four minutes, 21 seconds long. And it features Brian on lead vocals for the first time, uh, which is cool. It's a lovely soloing section there, mm-hmm. uh, instrumental sequence. There's something so satisfying in in how often queens are mentioned on this album. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. I loved it as a kid. Like, yeah, they're called Queen and they keep mentioning Queen. That's we, so cool. we should probably have a little round of applause for Brian May's first uh, outing in lead vocals on a Queen album. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Welcome, Brian. <laughs> it's such a lovely soft tone his voice isn't it well you would know more about this than, 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 than me, obviously. imagine if I was like I hate his singing <laughs> and I've deleted this track from my computer yeah he's got a lovely voice all three of them when they sing together their harmonies when it's Roger Brian and Freddie layering up harmonies they're three completely different voices and they blend together so well like there's never any bit of their harmonies where it's not congruent with the other singers. It's amazing. There was there was an interview with Brian where he said that he didn't like his voice sometimes and he said it sounded thready and reedy. What does that mean, Suze? Oh, he... he um, I, don't, I don't think he does, but I imagine British, British um, tenors and baritones, and he'd sit somewhere in the middle, can have a habit of pushing the sound what's called nasal they say singing through the nose you don't sing through the nose you sing through your mouth always but it's like the the pressure would be around the nose and it helps you hit higher notes 
and it can be a go-to method to hit higher notes. He probably leaned on that and then he'd hear that more. Also, have you ever heard a recording back of yourself and going, I sound horrible? It's because we hear our voices in our own heads with our own resonances. So we'll always sound thinner when we hear a recording back of ourselves. And um, he he presumably would hear it back and go, ugh. That's why I very safely never listened back to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And why I never sing. (laughs) (laughs) What what are the... I've always thought it's an interesting choice. Like I always know when Rogers... Why Rogers singing the songs that he sings. Mm. But it always seems to be a very specific choice when Brian's to sing... uh, you know, even that bit in the middle of I Want It All where he just takes that lovely little yeah. break. Um, and it's a decision, isn't it, where, you know, it's a decision as to whether Freddie does it or Brian does it. And I wonder what informs that decision, that, that the vibe of that piece. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on it's that. It's quite a folky number. And he like he sang 39 as well. Sure. And then yeah. another quite folky I'm song. And I wonder, it just suits him to sing these. Hmm. Do you remember there was a track, wasn't there, on the first Queen album that we said we wished Brian had... We would love to have heard oh, Brian's version of um, it. Was that Night Comes Down? Yeah. Night Comes Down, it yeah. was, yeah. yeah. So obviously at that point it was Freddie did all the singing, but um, mm-hmm. by now it's sort of like Brian's having a go and ju- justifiably so. Yeah, very much It's a lovely so. song. It's really deceptively simple. Mm. Uh, and then you've got these very sort of um, bombastic heavenly choir harmonies that is their trademark yeah it is that on paper have no place in a song like this but they fit perfectly i love i mean we've mentioned sort of 39 from night of the opera and long away i think from day of the races right and there's a few of those songs all the way through particularly the 70s era of queen where brian will do these sort of like ching 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 kind of like Mm -hmm. beautiful like they're not ballads they're what are they they're 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 um, shanties almost. <laughs> they're, they're just gorgeous. They have such a lovely feel to them. Well, I, I adore I, them. I've got an interview up uh, with Brian here from uh, Guitar Player magazine. And it's always interesting to read Brian's interviews in guitar magazines because he tends to say, he tends to be much more like open when he's talking to guitar nerds. So he, oh, okay. he often kind of drops in quite. So the stuff you wouldn't ex- ever expect to hear him say in a regular press interview, um, but he, but that aside, the the this is from 1983, and the interviewer says, "How would you like to be remembered?" And he says, "If I'm honest, I think I would like to be remembered for a few of the songs, none of which were really hits, but some of which had a lot of emotion in them: White Queen and Let Us Cling Together and Long Away." Ah, interesting. That is a beautiful selection. So I absolutely love Long Away and Teo Toriati. I just adore both mm. of those songs. Also, they say, "Are you happy with how your career is going?" And he says, "To be honest, no." <laughs> <laughs> what year was this? This, this, I think, this was the post, 82? the post Hot Space fallout after okay, the tour. Okay, they, they, they were, were having a year off. Yeah, 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 they were about yeah, to do the works yeah. and Live Aid. Little did he yeah. know. Yeah. Don't worry, Brian. Well, he's, they say, is there anything you'd like to accomplish in the future? And he says, sometime I would like Queen to go back and make a really hard rock album. I don't know oh, if that's going to happen, right. but it's one of the things I'd like to do. So I guess that's that's um, that's that was before the works, yeah. yeah. Mm. I think I kind of magic definitely did that, didn't it? 
Yeah, I think he just needed to get uh, hot space out of his system, probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to get to that album. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hot space. Uh, this brings us so swiftly, guys, to our feature, uh, our section of the show that we like to call News of the World. Come on, honey. So we're just going to have a little look at what uh, Queen are up to while uh, we're at the point at which we're recording this episode. Uh, and uh, there's a, a lovely thing that um, uh, the band members for Queen and Adam Lambert, uh, Neil Fairclough is their bassist and Tyler Warren is their sort of percussionist and um, backing singer. They have done a virtual performance of Rocket Prime Jive off of Play the Game because it's their, their favourite... Um, their favourite album and I think it's mine as well uh, and they've done that for Roger's 71st birthday and they also did uh, Sail Away Sweet Sister uh, for Brian's 73rd earlier this month uh, and they're out there on YouTube I strongly advise you to check them out, they're both brilliant brilliant songs and just brilliantly done with so much glee on their faces and uh, it's a nice way to mark uh, those two gents' birthdays, I think. So I thought I'd bring some attention to that. Uh, and on the 3rd of August, um, this uh, Queen, the Neil Preston Photographs uh, coffee table book uh, uh, has come out, which uh, features classic and previously unpublished photographs from 1977 to 1986. Neil was their official photographer on the tour for, for many years. Um, and I, I do want that book. I don't know. Have you had a sneak peek at it? John, have you already been sent a copy to sit alongside your two copies of Queen and Cornwall? Uh, no, alas, I haven't. I saw it advertised on Instagram, I think, because obviously my, my likes and follows are in part of an algorithm that bring me adverts for Queen stuff, but it looks very cool. It's an odd photo on the front cover, though. I can't quite work out what it is. That's a Velasaf field in Argentina. That was that 1982, was it 81, tour of um, South America. They went so why to, aren't they, they on went, the... They did football stadiums. But why aren't they on the pitch? Not allowed to go on the pitch. <laughs> but at uh, yeah, Wembley, they put down like... Um, yeah. They were obviously doing that at a time when the football season was either still on or the, the, the pitch was hallowed turf. And uh, so It must be so odd to have, an, if you're sat in, but at the away end and the band, <laughs> yes. and the, and the, band uh, the opposite end of the pitch, to have this enormous gulf between you and the band. I think maybe then, because I've, I've seen footage of concerts and there's always people right down at the front of the stage. I just wonder if those people were allowed in sort of last, as it were. Yeah, because it's quite right, a brave front cover because it makes you think, yeah. what's this a photo of? It's not. I mean, it's yeah. not a photo of Queen, which is quite quite an interesting choice. Yeah. Although I feel yeah. like the top half of that of that cover will will, will speak to your delectations. I think uh, font wise, and it's a you know, it's essentially a black version of the Queen Two Greatest Hits. Oh yeah. Which is, yeah, but it, but it be but it raises massively. a lot of questions that I guess you're going to answer by buying the book. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. And the other bit of news that I thought was really fun is uh, Flash Gordon got re released in UK cinemas in 4K right at the end of July. Uh, and Brian Blessed immediately started marching around the place saying that it's the Queen's favourite 
the actual Queen's favourite film, and that she told him that he that she listens, she plays it to her grandkids. Every, she watches it every Christmas and all this sort of stuff. And my mate Matt Holt, who's a director, um, has worked with Brian Blessed. <laughs> he said, uh, in fairness, Brian Blessed seems to think that Flash Gordon is everyone's favourite film. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe this ought to be taken with a pinch of salt. I have a friend who's a comedian who's an, a huge Queen fan, and Flash Gordon is his favourite album. So I thought when yeah. we come to that, we could yeah. maybe get him on for a little 10 minutes. Uh, because I I think safe to say that's probably the least likely choice of anyone's favourite Queen album. Not because it's not a good album, but because it's such a different album. So I thought maybe we could have him on to say why. I, d- I just wonder if someone ought to point out to... To, to Brian Blessed that the Queen was perhaps just being polite. <laughs> she said that. <laughs> she was just scared. Yes, very good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's excellent. I love it. We watch it every year. Who is this she man? Says that. <laughs> she says that to every single uh, 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 actor that she meets. All right. Uh, has anyone... Oh, the other little bit of news, the last bit of news, was um, Paul Bryan out in... Uh, is it Cobham somewhere? Where he lives, uh, his house almost burnt down due to a a bushfire. The poor man. Did you guys see about this, John? You you sent me the um the little link. Well, to that. well, I first heard about it because my uh, fiance's dad is a member of a golf club that backs onto that uh, common where the fire was. Uh, so it's that's right... a seven degree of right. Sorry, that's an appropriate <laughs> celebration for such an awful thing. <laughs> uh, so he, he, it's right by. There's loads of golf courses in that part of England. It's right by Wentworth and Sunningdale, and he was he was playing golf, and they were the last group. Uh, they were the only group to finish their round because the fire got so bad after they'd started. So I immediately, with no concern for his welfare, said. I didn't know Brian May lived near your golf course. What, from what <laughs> hole do you get the best view of his house? <laughs> I will go and live in that hole. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, you know, and I'm glad that he was. I'm so glad that he was all right, and the fire didn't actually reach him. And he was so, he was so complimentary to all the firefighters. But he he did make a genuine point, which is, you know, this is stuff that he's been. You know, the environmental issues is something that he's been going on for going on about for absolute decades uh, mm. and it isn't something that's in australia or la anymore i mean it is here on our doorstep so um yeah absolutely how why are we getting bushfires it's crazy mm. you know we've got to do something a bit more than just recycling i think now <laughs> mr <laughs> government we don't want to get too political but for god's sake mr government <laughs> right uh, so that's, uh, unless anyone else has got some juicy bits of news. My cat, Brian May, has been catching a frog a day. I've been taking them off her, going around the corners of the pond and throwing them in. <laughs> Someday, one day, there'll be no frogs in my garden. Hey. <laughs> oh, uh. That is, oh, that's my favourite bit of news of the world so far. <laughs> Big news. <laughs> okay. Wait till the Express gets hold of this. <laughs> <laughs> um... Okay, let's uh, let's get back to the works then. Uh, I thought just before we move on to um, uh, the loser in the end, which is uh, uh, written by Roger, I thought it might be worth just having a little look at see what a fool I've been here because uh, it was it was written by Brian May. It is the B side of Seven Seas of Rye, uh, but I do think that you know the um, the side black album is going to take a while to get through. So. Um, I thought we'd just have a little chat about see what a fool 
I've been here. What do you think? Sound all right? Should we listen Sounds to good. a tiny bit? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, I'm going to play the actual B side. Is fine, and it's on the uh, it is on the deluxe version of the Queen Two album, but also on the deluxe version of the Queen Two album. Hang on, is um, uh, a uh, BBC session from 1973, which I think got a little bit of a remix in 2011, and it just sounds better. So I'm going to use that version. Mm. I just thought I'd play a bit from uh, a bit of the beginning, you know, just how it starts off and uh, and then kicks in. She's gone, gone this morning. Say what a fool I've been. Oh Lord, I say. What a lovely, big, bluesy, heavy track. Simon, you like this song a bit, don't you? You've got a soft spot for this Yeah, track. I mean, it's just, I think it's just lovely, isn't it? When you, you think of the songs that we've listened to from this album to, yeah, today um, that were all written by Brian, and then he also wrote that, um, yeah. which is <laughs> so different to everything else that we've been listening to already. And there's this lovely story about it, is that he heard something similar once, uh, and because he couldn't record it at the time um that was it and it just stuck in his mind and then there was this i think it was a 30 year search to find out what that song was that had inspired that um and uh and he because he would always wanted to credit um the 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 inspiration for that song because uh, i think on on the b side of 70s right it's credited as traditional arranged by may rather than he, he didn't sort of claim it as being something that he'd written because it was so heavily inspired so there's a lovely story behind it as well and um i think just a nice a nice part of the queen lexicon in the sense that it was never on an album um mm. and uh, so you know you have to go looking for it to find it yeah it was on their live set for a very long time you don't have yeah. to look very far if you get the deluxe version of the album to be fair. well not two, now two no, the time. <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> of course very enough but that's so brian isn't it that he'll that sat there in his head i've got to solve that that, that mm. riddle for 30 years he didn't stop <laughs> yeah he's got that kind of i guess a scientist brain isn't it to um very kind of him as well to very gracious to not just go yeah i wrote this yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. i would <laughs> there's a lot of people who wouldn't have credited him it speaks as well to the fact that like so many um bands around at this time would say yeah we're in it for the music man and they were, but it was also a big ego trip. Whereas Queen really were in it for the music. Like, they're, they're huge music fans as well as ace musicians. And it comes across in stuff like this song. And that generosity you're talking about, you know, we, we've seen it before, you know, where they kept uh, Tim Staffel uh, credited on, on doing all right. And, you know, mm. they, 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 they have a very strong sense of ethics. It's something that I really love about them, actually. Yeah. Yeah. 
there's propriety in uh, is 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 a quality that they they enjoy um all right so this brings us to the final song on the white side of queen two which is uh the roger taylor song uh it's just over four minutes long uh, and it's called the loser in the end uh and roger takes lead vocals on this i just thought we'll listen to the opening of this It's such a Rogers song, isn't it? It's like every (laughs) album, there's a Rogers song, and it's just one of the perfect examples. Yeah, let the kids have fun, Mum. (laughs) (laughs) For goodness sake, you'll lose if you try and have that fight. Yeah, Uh, I I I loved it as a kid. Absolutely loved it. I used to make a. Obviously, I do that. I think I said I'd do a hard rock, but I always make a mixtape of all the Rogers songs as they would come in, and uh, I took great relish in, in kicking off with uh, Loser in the End on all of those mixtapes. Um, yeah. I've got a lot of, I, I think it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Uh, what is that crazy? You're a percussionist, Mr Lupton. What is that? Is it a cowbell that does that? Doot, doot, doot. Yeah, I can't remember exactly what they're called, but yeah, you, you get they're different sizes. Well, they're, cowbells, basically, they're cowbells. They're cowbells. <laughs> well, that's what they, yeah, that's what they sound like to me. But, um, yeah. Uh, but I love that he produces a tune out of his out of his drum, you yeah. know that you know that's, yeah that's yeah cool thing, uh, and it's such an unusual. It feels like such an unusual rhythm, like uh, the, the 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 lyrics, the, the the I don't know what you call them, the, the verse lines, sort of feel a bit more extended than they should be for the phrase that they're in. Does that make sense? Have I, am I just? I'm just talking to <laughs> blank faces. This is like one of my jokes. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Um, Roger tends to be the least proggy writer of the group, and this is the least proggy song on the album. Yes, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's the it's the it's the it's the song that's going. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm rocking out. I've re- a note I wrote when I was listening to this back said, I'd love to ask Roger what he thought about fairies, etc. <laughs> because <laughs> he's like, the he's sort of the least into, well, not into, I don't know. I've never asked him, but his songs, like <laughs> Sue says, are never about ogres or magic or in, in mm. these early albums. So I'd love, to, I'd love to just ask him what he was like when... When Fairy Fellas Masterstroke and Ogre Battle were being constructed, <laughs> and he wanted to write a song about cars and girls and yachts. It's so yeah. true. It's so true. On Night of the Opera, you've got Brian doing his enormous thing on side B, you've got Bohemian Rhapsody, and he's just going, Right, I'm doing a song about cars. <laughs> cars go fast. <laughs> also, a, there was a little bit tongue in cheek as well. Yeah. Oh, completely. This is quite a tongue in cheek song. John is quite low in the mix in the album as a whole, I would say. Yeah, there's like, some beautiful bass mm-hmm. runs in some of the stuff we've heard today, but um, but probably more so than Queen One, he's sort of I think dialed down a bit, and and I wonder if that's just getting lost in the 
orchestrations of the guitars and the and the harmonies. Uh, Perhaps mm, there's not mm. room for for all of them to kind of breathe as much as they did in the first album. Well, and also this song is based on a drum riff, mm. right? Mm. I mean, the drums are literally musical in this song. And in, oh, yeah, I love it. Lush. I yeah. love it. You're bound to be the loser. Yeah. You're bound to be the loser yeah. They'll choose the new shoes That's not part of it Your mom can always depend Yeah. Oh, it's just got such a great groove. Yeah. Mm. And there's loads going on it. I love there's a distinct possibility. It's just Roger writing a song about the fact his mum wants him to stay at home and he wants to move out. (laughs) 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 And everyone else is talking about queens and battles. (laughs) It wasn't that long ago since you were young, actually. Well, he would only have been, what, 20, just turned 25 when they recorded this? Yeah, Yeah, must have done, yeah. He could still very much have had those living in a small room above his mum's house, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's... You you can at 35 as well. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag just saying. Just just saying, guys. (laughs) On a level, there's a level on which Roger was sort of the one who understood what being a rock star is. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you, you, when you read up about the band, there's people going, oh, what's that story of a guy who just saw him climbing out of a supercar with uh, um, like two hot chicks on his arms? And he went, oh, that's what a rock star is. I'm going to be a rock star. Some turned right, out to be right. a, in, uh, in some huge band later in life. I um, think Roger could... could um... I think Roger could probably have slipped into any other rock band and sort of found his feet quite quite easily. Yeah, I, I don't think you could say the same for Brian or or John or or uh, Freddie, but I think Roger would be no. like, okay, there's the drinks, there's the there's the uh, limo, great, I'm I'm good. What yeah. what 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 time signature is this song in? Let's go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fun. It's just enormous fun, and it, you're right. It it is a departure from all the uh, fantasy of the stu- uh, of, of of the album, but it, and also it just sounds so much more uh it doesn't sound from the same era almost it sounds like mm-hmm. you know kind of it's kind of got an 80s vibe to it in lots and lots of ways yeah yeah it's cool it's also it's a great way to end this side of the album because mm. imagine this you've been your first listen through in like 74 and then you flip it over and you've got ogre button <laughs> <laughs> imagine that yeah incredible. incredible so it's like they've lulled you into yeah there's a lot of songs like this coming up. Turn it over, no? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And you can't do that on your Spotify, iTunes. So <laughs> do get a record player and an LP set. When, when you I listen, think. when you look at their set list as well for when they were touring at this point, they sort of bang out all their sort of the songs that they they were working on or they'd done at the time, and then they'd always finish with a a rock and roll sort of medley, um, mm. almost to sort of say that this is this is our roots. This is where we come from. This is what we do for fun. Um, mm. You know, we love playing jailhouse rock. You know, we love playing tutti frutti and things like that. And and it almost feels like the placing of this song is to go, yeah, we do all this massive, you know, over massively produced stuff with all these overdubs mm. and so forth. But 
still at the end of the day we like to rock out and have fun yeah yeah, we're a rock yeah. and roll band. We're a rock and roll which band. Which is an awesome, awesome statement. Which brings us finally, and I've been practising this week, guys. Uh, this brings us to the Queen de la Queen. Ah, you go. <laughs> of Queen 2. So this is where we... Uh, I'm so proud of myself, and there's been no response from the group on, on, on my powers there, but thank you, Simon. Um, <laughs> so if we're going to pick... One track to go on the ultimate playlist, your ultimate Queen playlist from this side of Queen 2. Should we start with you, Suze? I've changed my mind. Have you? From what I initially thought, and put a little asterisk by, I thought it was going to be Father to Son, but I've changed to White Queen. Really? Why? I mean, no, no, I don't mean surprise why. I mean, why? Why? I think, <laughs> I think, I think um, having, having, I've never talked about it with anybody until today. So, like, talking about this side of the album, White Queen suddenly feels like the more ambitious song from this side of the album. And I respect that. Oh, <laughs> that's awesome. And yeah, it's been, yeah, I think it's a deceptively ambitious song. Yeah. And I'm putting it in as my queen de la queen. La, la queen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. It's not so easy, is it? John, what are you <laughs> thinking, mate? Um, well, I think it's fair to say, personally, for me, the big bangers are on the second side. Mm, mm-hmm. If we're talking major top-level bangers. So... I'm torn between um, White Queen and Procession, actually. But I think Mm. because Procession would probably sound quite strange out of context (laughs) on a playlist, (laughs) I think I'd probably go for White Queen as well, but I wouldn't mind if Father to Son were on. Mm. I mean, Father to Son is massive. It's longer than Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm. And it sounds amazing. Mm. How, how are you feeling, Simon? Oh. Has this podcast uh, changed the position that you hadn't confidently confidently set for yourself at the beginning of this process? I think, like the others, I I had in my head uh, one that I instinctively went to before I went started listening to the album again because I remember this song standing out for me when I first heard the album, and I made myself a little mixtape of of non hits. Mm. Um, from the album, you know, my what I thought were my favourite album tracks, and um, this song was on it. Um, and during the process we've been through this afternoon, I have been I have been wavering. Um, it's, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that instinct because it's been I'm I'm gonna go for Father to Son, but I have to say White Queen was it's such a great track, but I'm gonna stick mm. with Father to Son. It's good for you. So I I'm going to say this. Uh, I'm going certainly going back to when I was a kid and I think it's an, an attitude that I've retained um I will be you know I I respect White Queen enormously and uh and talking about it today and listening to it in this way has, has made me actually really appreciate the song in a whole, a whole new way but I have generally not enjoyed the song very much because I found it quite slow and uh, and ballady and all that sort of stuff. And I, I like it and it's great, um, but it is a song that I'm 
never considered to be as potent as I do now, having spent two hours talking about this album, and I do see how much more potent it is. So I have got a huge amount of respect for it. However, I do think Father to Son is, has got to be the track you put in your ultimate playlist because it's just so huge and melodic and just if it, whenever it comes on, you'll be hopefully not driving because you'll be jumping up and down and punching the air and all that kind of stuff. So I, I think I'm going father to son though i do think that uh, you have to put white queen in your in your wider um, queen playlist because it is it is an epic track and you guys have really helped me understand just quite how powerful a, a track it is actually <laughs> so thank you for that um and that brings us to the end of queen 2 the white side well done everyone Whew. thanks everyone on a hot, hot day it was really fun uh, so all that remains for us to say is we hope that you join us next time as we look at the black side of Queen 2 which is going to have some wonderful tracks for us to discuss all written by Freddie Ogre Battle, The Fairy Fellas, Masterstroke, Nevermore The March of the Black Queen, Funny How Love Is and Seven Seas of Rye uh, which was of course their first hit single so th- we're getting into the good stuff now I can tell you that much as if we haven't been already um, and it's also... Uh, just worth saying to everyone please do the likes leave the reviews give us a star rating because you know we like to hear back from you but also it's it's good to know that you're out there and enjoying it drop us a line queenpod at the queenpodcast.com if you've got any questions about this album uh, anything that we've said today uh you know um just remember we're talking from here no uh so um, (laughs) at the uh you can also uh see what we're up to at the queen pod on twitter and instagram uh and there it is there we have it uh all that remains is for us to say goodbye goodbye everyone goodbye This has been The Queen Pod, a Seven Seas Films production, edited and produced by me, Fergus March. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and stay in touch by emailing queenpod at thequeenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.